Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you will open our eyes to its truth and that our hearts may be changed by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is love? It's a word that gets thrown about an awful lot. Whatever your age and your musical taste, I'm sure you can think of popular songs with the word love in them. I'm sure you can think of movies that are all about love. But what are they portraying about love? Is that true? Because the world can give us some pretty strange ideas of what love actually is. 14th of February, for example. Except for my husband who will say it's his sister's birthday, I think we all know what's celebrated on the 14th of February. Valentine's Day. Is that really a celebration of love? To some people, it's a wonderful romantic occasion. To some people, it's a chance to just try and make a good impression or exploit someone or manipulate someone. To some people, let's be honest, it's a chance to make a lot of money, especially if you're selling cards, chocolates, flowers, or run a restaurant. There's a Valentine's Day. Then there's Romeo and Juliet. And everyone says, oh, what a great love story. And I say, have you actually read it? <laughs> because what you have here is two teenagers, a girl of about 13 or 14, a boy of probably about 17 or 18. They meet each other. They get infatuated with each other over about three days. All these things happen because of their rule-breaking infatuation. And at the end of the story, six people are dead. Is that really love? Then you have the case, and it turns up every year or two in the headlines, of a man who his wife was leaving him or his farm was failing or whatever it might be. He decides he's had enough. He kills his wife and children, and then he commits suicide. And people say, oh, but he was such a nice bloke, and look how much he loved his family. Really? If you're going around murdering people, you're not loving them. I don't think that's very hard to work out. And then we have the people who are running off together or doing something inappropriate, and they say, oh, but we love each other, so it must be right. Really? Try Googling, if you really have spare time and don't want to be too shocked, great love stories of history. I made the mistake of doing that. At least half of them, I would say, were adultery, and some others are rather odd, and at least one was not a relationship at all. They were quoting Dante and Beatrice. And for those of you who don't know who Dante and Beatrice was, Dante was a, an early Renaissance uh, Italian writer, poet, and he wrote, he's famous for writing the Divine Comedy. And his muse, if you can call it this, was Beatrice, who was a nobleman's wife, whom he adored, looked up to, and said inspired him. I don't think he ever actually spoke to her. It wasn't what I would call a relationship, and I don't think most of us would. 
none of those things are really what love is. Love is a verb. It's what we do, not just our big, overwhelming feelings. I can have big, overwhelming feelings for chocolate. I don't think that's biblical love. It's not, love is not desire or possessiveness or infatuation or obsessiveness. Feelings come. Feelings go. They don't necessarily do any good to the person we feel them for. Uh, Broughton Knox had a definition of love which I think captures the biblical meaning. Love is other person-centeredness, that is, interest and concern for the welfare of the other person. It's never inactive, but always engaged in promoting the welfare of the other person. In other words, love is not about me or my needs or what I want the other person to do for me. Love is about them and what they need and what I can do to enable their good. So who's the other person we're supposed to love? Well, let's look at some of the things the Bible says. Our families. The Bible specifically says, he who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever. Then there's our extended family in Christ, the one another of all those commands to love one another. We're the one another. Look around you. Then there's our neighbour, the person who needs us. Example, the Good Samaritan. And then there's our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies. Our family, our Christian family, our neighbours, our enemies. Does that leave anyone out that we're not obligated to love? I can't think of anyone who doesn't fall into one of those categories. Maybe you can. Obviously, we don't owe the exact same thing to each of those people. The Good Samaritan, if I can take that example, didn't, he set up a provision for the guy. He uh, made sure he was cared for, left money to care for him. He didn't stay and personally care for him. He had other obligations. We do have different obligations in different circumstances. We also are never required to give people their inappropriate want. I mean, as parents, you don't give your kids whatever they ask for. Some of what they ask for would not be good for them at all. And we also don't have to indulge someone else's sins and enable them. That's not love either. So... Where does love come from? Well, verse 7 of our passage makes it very plain. Love is from God. Four words, sums up the whole situation. Love is not an optional extra for the Christian. It's something we're commanded to do. Three times in this short passage alone, verses 7, 11 and 12, if you want to check, fact check, we are commanded to love one another. In fact, John puts it right out there that we cannot claim to love God if we do not love one another. We are not the source of love. God is. We're capable of desire, of tenderness, gratitude. We need one another, etc., etc. But we're also sinners. 
and some of our other, sometimes some of our other person-centeredness breaks down. We want what we want. Deep inside each one of us is that insistent voice saying, what about me? Where do I get my needs met? We're subject to resentment, envy, greed, lust, pride, fear, quarrelsomeness, and you can add to the list yourselves. And sometimes we just can't be bothered doing what that person needs. We're tired, we've had enough, there's something else we'd rather be doing. Sometimes love is just plain hard work. Doesn't sound very romantic, does it? Love doesn't start with us. It started with God who loves us from all eternity and who wants us to be with him for all eternity. In verse 10 we're told, in this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us. So if we ask what this love is that we're supposed to be giving each other, then the answer is, what does God's love for us look like? Because that gives us as a picture of what the character of love is that we're supposed to give each other. So not an exhaustive list because we all want to go home and have lunch today, but just looking at some of the facets of God's love for us and saying this is how we should be towards one another. The first, the most obvious one, he laid down his life for us. We have a cross up there for a reason. You'll find a cross in virtually every Christian church for a reason. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of our identity. We are the people that Jesus died for. He laid down his life so that we could be his. And he tells us we should so lay down our lives for one another. Next, he forgives us. This is crucially important. Forgiveness, again, is central to who we are and who God has called us to be. We are a forgiven people, and we have to extend that forgiveness to one another. Jesus said, for if you forgive others, if you forgive other people their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Somewhere there's a link, a synergy between receiving God's forgiveness and forgiving others. Let's be very careful we don't harbour unforgiveness and resentment in our hearts. God does not turn anyone away who comes to him with a penitent heart. God doesn't play favourites. It doesn't matter what your gender, your age, your socioeconomic status, your educational level, how good-looking you are, how whatever, you can go on and on and on, your ethnicity, your uh, whether you have a criminal history, whatever you like to add to that. It doesn't matter to God. He will accept us if we come to him with a repentant heart. And we don't have the right to say we only want to love people who are like us. We're not given that option. God is patient and long-suffering. So should we be. God keeps his promises. 
It's very important that we are people of our word who keep our promises, that we're trustworthy, that people know they can rely on our word. Somebody said that the number one way in which Christians lie is when they say, often when they say, I'll pray for you, and then go away and forget all about it. If you have committed to praying for someone, do so. If they're there, pray with them on the spot. If, if it's a message or something, pray for them on the spot. So if you're like me and very forgetful, you have prayed for them, and hopefully you'll remember again later. Commit to what you say you will do. God is just and fair. Our love must have integrity. We don't just ooze all over the place and do what we like. Justice has to come before mercy. We have to be fair-minded. God notices our needs. Think, for instance, of Zacchaeus hiding up in that tree and Jesus walking along, looked up and saw him and called him down. Think of the Good Samaritan going down that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone else passed by the wounded guy. The Good Samaritan noticed and did something about it. It's often easier to turn our eyes away so we've got the excuse, oh, sorry, I didn't know. We are called to be aware. God's love gives us worth and dignity. It's all too easy to take other people's dignity away from them. But every one of us was created in the image of God, and even though we soiled it and spoiled it by what we are, we are still his, and he is calling us to become his for all eternity. Jesus died for us because we have value to him. We are going to be with him forever because we are going to be the glorious children of God. See other people as having that potential for glory. Don't be contemptuous. God has walked in our shoes. Jesus is our great high priest precisely because he has walked through the pains and weaknesses and limitations of human life. Now, when people's sufferings and situations are different from our own experience, sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes we have to be honest and say, I don't completely understand, but I hear your pain. And sometimes we have to be willing to use our imagination to try and help us understand. Empathy matters. God wants our highest good and was willing to do the hard stuff to attain it. Don't settle or compromise them. We, you know, call each other to be the best we can be. God's words bring life, hope and courage. They encourage us. They actually breathe courage into us to get up and do what must be done. All too often, we are discouragers, which really means we take each other's courage away from us. That's not what we want to do at all. Try and give encouragement. Build people up. God loves us with wisdom. Well, God has infinite wisdom. You and I don't. And so we need to pray for wisdom. We need to be wise about 
what's best to do for someone. Everyone who's been a parent, for example, knows that there's times when you're scratching your head, what's the best way to handle this situation? And the same applies in our adult relationships as well. And the other part we we need wisdom is that we are limited creatures. God has infinite resources. You and I don't. We have 24 hours a day, some of which must be spent in sleep and tasks of necessity, like eating and washing ourselves, earning your living, doing the errands that have to be done. There are things that are non-negotiable. What do we do with the rest of our time and energy? How do we prioritise? What do love's priorities look like in our daily lives? We need wisdom. So those are just a few examples, just tip of the iceberg, of looking at how we love like God loves us. So how do we do it? I'm not God. You're not God. How do, where does it come from? I say to you that love has its roots in faith, and love and faith work together. Faith is love putting its trust in the one who loves us. Love is faith in action, trusting that as we do what God has called us to do, he will supply the ability to do it. So, how does it work? First, we have to come to Jesus. We don't have access to his strength, power and ability if we don't. We have to acknowledge that no one else can save us. We actually have to be connected to him. We submit to him as the Lord of our lives, knowing we are totally dependent on him. Then his Holy Spirit, whose nature is love itself because God is love, takes up residence inside us, lives in us and sanctifies us. That means makes us more like Jesus in character. And his gifts are developed in us. And his fruit and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that grows inside us and becomes visible to the outside world. Someone explained the fruit of the Spirit this way. I personally really like this. Love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. And verse 12 of this passage tells us, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in it. That means it reaches its goal, it achieves its purpose. Another way of looking at the same process is to use Jesus' metaphor of the vine and the branches, which we find in John 15. So we are grafted into the true vine, which is Jesus, by the vine dresser, who he tells us is God the Father. If we are grafted in and the graft holds, we're really connected, then the life-giving sap of the vine, which is the Holy Spirit, flows through us. Because it flows through us, then we produce fruit. And fruit takes time to grow. Be real. And this fruit proves our membership of the vine. We will be pruned, but we will never be discarded. But we falter, don't we? 
None of us can claim that in this past week, just this past week, all the time, we loved everyone around us with utterly selfless devotion. If you did, please come up here and tell us how you did it. I'd certainly like to know. No takers. Things get in the way, don't they? Our own selves get in the way. We go weary, we grow impatient. We just get overwhelmed with the stuff of life. We can only love one another as God first loved us when we can fully entrust our needs to God. It's very human to only want to give to people who give back to us. We are drawn to the people that we're getting something from, let's be honest. But Jesus had some strong words to say about that back in Matthew 5. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We to love to the measure that God loves us. But do not fear. The Bible also tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We too are needy, every one of us until we can fully trust that God loves us utterly and provides for our needs, we're going to stumble over our fear of being left out, overlooked, and our needs not being met. Our pride will struggle with being a servant. Our insecurities will make us doubt. Our resentment will make us want to push our own needs forwards. And for some people, it's even harder to believe in God's love and entrust ourselves to it if our own experiences of human love have been lacking, if we've been betrayed, abused, neglected, manipulated, disappointed, etc., our subconscious expectation is that God will treat us the same way. It's hard to trust when your trust has been broken. It's a bit like the story of the father who urged his child to stand on the top railing of the veranda and jump down to his arms. He says, I'll catch you, I'll catch you. Child put a bit of persuading. At last, he jumped. And the father stood back, let him fall. And then as he picked him up and brushed him down, he said to him, learn this lesson, don't ever trust anyone. It's pretty awful, isn't it? But... No one might have said that to you in so many words, but along the way, we've all had our trust broken in little things or big things, and it can be hard. And that really hinders our ability to love. John says in verse 18 of the same chapter that there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So do the hard yards. Ask yourself the hard questions. Face those negative emotions, name them. Give them back to the God who forgives you. Pray about it. Seek help if you need it. Pastoral help, professional help, whatever you need. Don't settle for second best when God is calling you into a life of love beyond anything you dreamed or imagined. Let his love carry you 
where you cannot take yourself. In conclusion, I want to tell a story that, to me, typifies what love is supposed to look like in the nitty-gritty of the real world. A few years ago, Alistair and I were in Washington, D.C., and we were visiting all the Smithsonian museums, and it was quite hot. So our thing was early in the morning when it was cool, we'd set off, go to the museums we'd pick for the day, wander around them, have a good look, and then in the heat of the afternoon, when we were tired, we'd catch a cab back to our hotel. And one time, the man who picked us up, when we talk, gave him directions, said, are you Australians? We said, yes, it's a bit hard to hide your accent in America. And uh, he said to us, oh, I love Australians. Okay, this is rather nice. What's he feel that way for? So, of course, I said, so why is this? And he told us the story. He was from Eritrea. And if you don't know where Eritrea is, it's on the border of Ethiopia and they had a big war of independence to be free of Ethiopia and be a self-governing country. And when there was war and famine and everything was going pear-shaped, who should come to their village? But Fred Hollows, who most of you will know of as the guy who went round doing eye operations in third world places to give people back their sight. And when he turned up, they said to him, Oh, sorry, we haven't got anything for a Western man at the moment. We're short of food. We haven't got anywhere nice for you to stay. You know, we're not in the right condition. And he said, it doesn't matter. I'll stay with you. I'll live under the same conditions as you are living for as long as it takes to give people back their sight. And that is what he did. He lived on their famine rations with bombs falling around them at times, all, all the things that most of us can't imagine putting up with. And he stayed there for three weeks, operating on people's eyes, giving them back their sight. And when it was all over, and the war was over, they built a school in that village, and they named it after him. And for that reason, this cab driver in, in the US loved Australians. It's a pretty powerful story, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we know that we all fall short of love. We know that that self-centeredness inside us so often gets in the way. But we pray that each one of us will come to rely more and more on the love that you first had for us. And that as we do so, we will be channels of your love to other people, so that the world might see the love of Jesus in us. We ask it in his name. Amen.